I am thrilled to be welcoming Mark Anthony Falzon on Network Capital, who's written a fascinating book um, on Sindhis and the way they go about businesses. In addition, I'm thrilled to learn about Mark's very adventurous career. So today's discussion will focus on these two things, Mark's career, his writing, and how he's uh, come to fall in love with the kind of subjects that he talks, thinks, and writes about. So Mark, welcome aboard. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what do you do for a living? Um, well, I am uh, Mark, as you said, um, I'm, I'm uh, an anthropologist. Um, that's what I do for a living, really. Um, uh, perhaps more tangibly, I, I uh, teach at the University of Malta, which is where I'm from. Awesome. So what does an anthropologist really do? Um, the, the, the simple answer is uh, studies people. Um, but what about people, of course, because so, I mean, so do gerontologists and so many others. Um, uh, well, anthropologists really look at look at um, uh, people's interactions in society. Um, uh, there is a very close kinship between anthropology and sociology. Um, historically, there was a division of labor. Um, anthropology really developed in a very much colonial, actually, uh, context. Um, sociology really was born to study um, our own societies, I would say, or rather the industrialized societies of, of, of the what used to be called the West, or you know, nowadays tend to be called the Global North or something like that. Um, um, so, so anthropology has that history, really, the, the, the colonial context, but, but it has, I think, amply weaned itself of, uh, of those origins. And nowadays, anthropologists um, study really any society, including very much their own. Um, but but it, it's it's um, it's the study of human interaction in society. Perhaps what makes anthropology stand out is its uh, approach. Um, anthropology's preferred method is what is called ethnography, which is not just to to run surveys or to, to run polls or something like that. Um, but to live with people, with the people you're interested in, um, for usually an extended period of time, and uh, produce data that way. So that, that, I think, in a nutshell, is what anthropology is about. So how does an anthropologist from Malta uh, figure out Sindhis and get interested in Sindhis <laughs> and write about them? Yes. <laughs> Um, sometimes I wonder, but but um, in, in fact, in fact, um, this goes back a, a long a long time. Um, I I am as I think we've already said I'm I'm, I'm from Malta. Um, now uh, Malta is a nation state, an independent nation state. It used to be British actually until 1964. Um, it's an island. It's a very 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 small island. Um, uh, very, very hard to explain how small, especially to someone from India. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mumbai, Mumbai is much bigger than Malta, for example. Um, that's how small it is. It's, um, it's, it's in a member state of the European Union. In fact, the smallest member state of the European Union. And what I think really matters to this conversation, especially, is its geographical location because Malta is in the really almost the exact center of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's sort of somewhere not really between close to Sicily and, and the, the nearest land um, below us is Libya. Um, uh, but it's right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, just as Gibraltar, for example, has a geographically very strategic location. Um, uh, Malta, uh, likewise. And that's where Cindy's come in. Um, uh, because when I was young, this is a long time ago now, um, when I was young and I lived in Valletta, I, I, I was brought up in Valletta, which is the capital city of Malta. Um, it's really the only significant city in Malta, historically. Um, we had uh, Indians living next to us. We call them Indians. 
the, the Indians, we call them, Lindiani Maltese. Um, uh, Maltese is a bit like Italian, so Lindiani, you know, the Indians, Lindiani. Um, we had no idea where they were from, except that they were from India. Um, uh, and these people were in business in Valletta. They had been for many, many years, since around 1860, in fact. Wow. Um, so growing up, we had these Indians um, uh, as our neighbors. They blended in very, very well. Um, uh, most of them went to the same school I did. The, the boys and the girls went to a, to a school where my mom taught, actually. Um, uh, Catholic, Catholic schools, these were. Um, and they had shops in Valletta. They had shops on the main street in Valletta. They sold all manner of things, but um, primarily um, souvenirs and, and um, a bit later electronics and um, textiles and clothes. I was much more interested in, in the first uh, line as a, as, a, as a kid. And I remember spending a lot of time staring at the shop windows of these Indians. Um, because it, it was really a sort of an Aladdin's cave in a sense. Um, they had, this was the eighties. So on the one hand, they had electronics. You know, in the eighties, electronics were, were a, no a novelty. So uh, these little handheld electronic games, uh, Casio watches, some watches with calculators on them. And these were, I mean, they were very cool gadgets to, to, to look at and maybe have in the 1980s. And the Indian, the, the Indians um, were well stocked for certain reasons, which we'll probably go into later. Um, but then of course, side by side, they had things like incense, um, uh, exotic looking uh, sandals, um, uh, little figures of, of uh, Ganesh, for example. And, and so, you know, this, this looked very, very, very exotic. And I remember spending, not hours, but uh, probably too much time looking at, staring at, at the, the, the windows of these, these shops. Um, so, of course, I had no idea, who, again, who, who these people were, except that they were Indians. Um, um, Later on, when, when I, I went to university and, and I took up anthropology and I was looking around for something to, to study, um, um, it was as mundane as that, I'm afraid, nothing to, um, just looking around for something suitable to, to, to study, you know, as my first project. Um, um, and someone mentioned the Indians of Malta. They said, why, why not look at the Indians of Malta? They're a fascinating group. They've been around a long time and will make a great topic. And I got in touch. And that's when I got to know that they were not just Indians, but they were Sindhis um, hmm. uh, from Sindh. Um, they had been in Malta, as I said, for, for a couple of generations, actually, since the 1860s. Um, and the reason why they were in Malta had to do precisely with the geographic location of Malta, which I mentioned earlier. Um, um, you have to go back, you have to imagine the 19th century and what a Mediterranean port meant in the 19th century. These were, uh, so, so to speak, the watering holes of empire. No, they were hubs of empire, Gibraltar, Malta, Alexandria, um, especially, especially when the Suez Canal was opened in 1870, um, ships would go through the Mediterranean en route to India. So Gibraltar, Malta, Alexandria, and other Mediterranean ports became very, very important stopovers. And what happened was that Sindhis, I, I can tell you a story later if you like, um, Sindhis ended up, ended up, uh, well, ended up is, is not quite the, the what happened, but, but um, they arrived in Malta in the 1860s, selling originally what they called curios um, from curios, Sin. Yeah. Curios, um, uh, things like uh, daggers and, and uh, um, lacquered boxes and you know, bit, bit, bits and pieces. And, and they sold these to travelers for the most part, um, uh, British travelers, 
in the Mediterranean looking for something exotic to buy probably on the way back home. And the Cindy shops were perfect for that because they really catered for, for, for that. So that's how my interest um, in Cindy's started really um, uh, in, in, uh, in Malta. There are still Cindy's in Malta, by the way. It's a thriving community of people. Fascinating. What was the story that you were about to tell? We can't let you uh, not tell it. <laughs> uh, uh, the story of how Cindy's got to Malta. Yes, right. okay. I think this is probably my, my, my favorite part of, of the, the Cindy story. Um, uh, I don't know if, if, if you've ever come across the word Sindwork. Sindwork. Um, uh, well, Sindwork originally um, uh, came from Sind works, the works of Sind, the works of Sind. And this is the clue to our story, really. Um, we have to go back to around 1850, 1860, mid 19th century, to a place called Hyderabad, but Hyderabad in Sind, in Sind, which mm. is today of course part of Pakistan. Um, um, and uh, in, in, in 1843, Hyder, not Hyderabad, but Sindh had been annexed, conquered by the British, really. And it became part of the Bombay presidency at the time. Um, for various reasons, the Hindu traders of Hyderabad decided to expand their businesses. Now, there is some background here. I can't go into too much detail because I would bore you to death. But um, I think we need to know that in Sindh in the 19th century, indeed up to partition, pre-partition Sindh, most of the trade was in the hands of Hindus. So right. the majority of people were Muslim. The rulers were Muslim the Kaloras later, the Talpurs of Sindh. But most of the trade was in the hands of the Hindus, primarily, primarily in, in, in Karachi, but also in Hyderabad and in a city called Shikarpur, to the north, Shikarpur. Mm. Um, these, these, three, these three places. Um, what sort of trade did these people do in the 19th century and earlier? Well, the Shikarpuris in the north specialized in money lending. Um, and it, it, it's an absolutely fascinating story because the Shikarpuris were not local money lenders. They were not lending money to farmers um, or elites in Sindh, but they were running an, a money lending and banking business all across Central Asia up to the Black Sea, actually. Um, uh, this goes back to the, at least the 18th century, the 18th century. Later on, they, they expanded to Russia and so on. So that was the Shikarpuris in the north. Um, the Hyderabadis, on the other hand, specialized in a more maritime, inclined trade, very often through Karachi. Um, so when Sindh became part of British India, became part of the Bombay presidency, they found that it, it was a mixed bag, really. On the one hand, it was a, great, a time of great and very, very severe disruption. Why? Mm. Because, the, the, for example, Hyderabadi traders used to sell, used to, used to, used to sell goods to local elites. No, to the mirrors and so on. The mirrors were now gone, but the British took the place. Um, money lending as well became more complicated, certainly in Sindh, because, because uh, the British had their own treasury system and they were not inclined to borrow money from, from, from local money lenders. In any case, it was a very disruptive um, uh, time indeed. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes good things come of these disruptions. Disruptions are also opportunities, if you will, because the lines are redrawn, you know. Um, um, and if, if you have an eye for where the opportunities lie, 
these times can actually be very, very good for especially enterprising people. And Sindhis are, Hindu Sindhis, very enterprising people. I'm always amazed, fascinated how, fast, how, how enterprising they are. Um, um, so, a time of disruption, Hyderabad, mid 19th century, and they decide to expand for various reasons. They decide to ply their trade outside of Sindh and where to? Originally in the direction of the Mediterranean via, mm -hmm. Bombay, via Bombay. Why? Because the Mediterranean was a great marketplace. Um, exactly. Later on, of course, they would also head eastwards to the, the, the Strait Settlements, Singapore, for example, and, 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 and further east, Japan, very, very notably Japan. But their first thrust was in the direction of the Mediterranean. And what they would do was to, to, to sell goods made in Sindh, the handicrafts of Sindh, the crafts of Sindh, and therefore Sindh works. You have to imagine them selling, you know, on board ships and importing. Sindh works, Sindh works, the works of Sindh. Why? Because the works of Sindh, the, the handicrafts of Sindh, were actually highly prized. They had a bit of a reputation, um, a bit of a, you know, a far-reaching reputation, actually. Lots of goods made in India did, of course. Um, but certainly, certainly Sindh works were among them. Um, so the mid-19th to the late 19th century, we have this spread, it, uh, as I said, an incredible spread, an explosion of traders from this tiny town in Sindh, Hyderabad, to the Mediterranean, then again on, on to, to, to South America, places like Panama, for example, but always, or well, for the most part, port cities. That, that's where they went, port cities, because that's, that's where their market was. Now, of course, that's the first part of the story, because these Sindh work firms would grow and develop. The data that we have, suggests that they did very well. Most of them did very, very well. And by the late 19th century, they were turning very good profits. How do we know this? Well, partly by looking at, for example, the transformation of Hyderabad itself. Havelis were going up. Luxury in, in, in Hyderabad, um, clubs and so on. And that, that suggests that you know, people were making money. There was new money coming in flowing in from, from, from this trade. Um, so, so the Sindwerk firms grew, they expanded, and by the early 20th century now, we have firms, some of them very, very big firms, like Celeram, for example, these are still around, they are still around today, uh, Choitram, uh, Chanrai, in fact, these three companies are called the three seeds, no? Chelaram, Choitram, and Chanrai, because they were sort of the three, the three strongest, the three biggest uh, Sindwerk companies. Um, and they had branches all over the world. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, literally, huh? and so many places around, around, around the world. Um, Again, I, I know this from looking at the letterheads of companies, for example, um, where, where they have all their branches listed. So I, I was able to draw up maps and so on. Um, and that is why, that is the reason why, that is in fact the history of Sindhis as we know them today. Sindhis, certainly in India, but not just in India, have a reputation as travelers, as being everywhere really in fact you know there are jokes i mean tired jokes i i should say about cindy's on the moon and cindy's in alaska and and, and uh, whatever <laughs> else <laughs> in fact i think i i start the book with with one of those uh, jokes this is when when um when armstrong first walked on the moon no uh, he was approached by a by a cindy who tried to sell him a flag <laughs> <laughs> 
it's it's a, admittedly a very tired joke among Sindhis, but but they have this 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 reputation, um, and it's not it's it's certainly um, a well-founded reputation, and this is some part of the history of it. What I've just told you is part of the history of this spread of this geographical spread. Of course, in the mid twentieth century, then they no longer sold the works of sin. They had diversified, so they were selling textiles. For example, Sindhis in Japan were exporting Japanese textiles all over the world. Um, uh, Sindhis in Malta were exporting Malta lace to many, many places um, around the world. So wherever they went, they didn't just uh, peddle goods and sell the works of Sindh, but they developed their own markets. Um, uh, they, they grew their own, their own, their own markets. They grew their own opportunities, um, and and so by the time of partition, um, what we have is this network or two networks, strictly speaking. The Shikarpuris, I've already mentioned them, but the Sindhworki networks, the Hyderabadi Sindhworkis, in in many many countries around the world. Um, firms recruiting people back in Hyderabad. They would recruit young men back in Hyderabad to work in the companies on usually two and a half, three year contracts. Um, uh, and in turn, many of these people would set up their own businesses. There is this tendency perhaps among Sindhis for people to, to, to strike out on their own. Now it's a, it's a strong compulsion. This, this, it's it's a cultural uh, it's a cultural feeling that you have to strike out on your own at some point. So many of the employees of the Sindwork the Sindwork firms because they're still called Sindwork firms. They no longer sell Sindwork, of course, but they are still called Sindwork firms. It's a historical legacy, um, uh, and uh, many of these employees eventually set up on their own. I've tried to give you um, I I've tried to condense. You know, 150 years plus now, years of history in a few minutes, which is impossible. But hopefully, I've managed to give you a small idea of what Sindhis are about. It's fascinating. I hope that um, our listeners around the world find this as interesting as I do, because um, when reading the book, when listening to you, just familiarizing yourself, myself with uh, your body of research, it struck me that how interesting is the Sindhi network? How how intuitive and well-developed has been their business sense. A lot of the stuff that uh, you were talking about uh, growing markets is what we learn in mergers and acquisitions and international expansion in an MBA uh, program. Absolutely. So it'll, it'll be of, of deep interest to a lot of folks. I want to discuss some of the technical issues of your book, uh, but tell me a bit about Gurucharan Das. Uh, how do you guys know each other and how did this Jugalbandi or collaboration sort of start? I would love to be able to say I know Gurcharan Das well, <laughs> but I, I don't. Um, uh, I knew of him, of course. I mean, his, his, his name is very well, well known, but, but um, I got an email from him. Um, that was about a year and a half ago, I think, a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and he asked me if I would do this book. Um, it was a. Hmm. Uh, um, uh, and uh, you know you don't really say no to to Gurcharandas <laughs> and to Penguin. So so um, um, I said I said yes, um, and I and that, that's how I know him really. Um, he was very 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 nice and helpful throughout. Um, very generous with his knowledge. He wrote um, a fine introduction to the book, which you may have read. Um, uh, so I'm all I can say is I'm. Honored, um, and I feel privileged to be sharing space on the front cover with Gurcharan. But why you? That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, there are oh, many people okay. who would perhaps know this. Uh, what made Gurucharan Das? Uh, I know him a bit. Um, uh, reach out to you with a very clear and I would say very interesting mm -hmm. proposal. How might people attract luck? Is the broader question. Yes, yes. Um, as you said, I mean, there are many other people who have studied and written about Sindhis, very good quality work in many cases. Um, uh, so it, it, there was a bit of luck, I suppose, about it. But um, uh, I have to be a bit fair to myself as well. Um, uh, I, I had uh, published a book 
um, about Cindy's back in 2005, I think, um, uh, based on fieldwork, which I did um, in, in, in India and in London and in a couple of other places. Um, so I think that's probably why he contacted me, um, uh, because I had a book about Cindy's, um, uh, which he read, he told me. Um, uh, and he thought it um, good enough to, to, to ask me. I think that's, that's, that's the reason. Um, but I should point out that there are many other people who could have written this book because there's a lot of good work on Cindy's in many cases by Cindy scholars, scholars who are themselves uh, Cindy's. I, I should not mention names because I'm sure I would probably forget them. <laughs> no, but I think it's really... People, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, these days one has to be careful. You never know who be your friend unintentionally. Um, but there is, as an anthropologist, it must be exciting, right? Studying some people completely unfamiliar to you with a different lens as, as opposed to being in, an insider and studying a network as, uh, as a participant. What are the difference between both these approaches and how, how do you think your approach is reflected in the book? Um, that is a, 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 um, a great but very difficult question because I, I often ask, in fact, I'm not making this up, just yesterday I was asking myself this question actually. <laughs> um, I was out walking and asking myself this question. Um, let, let me try to, first of all, there is the historical bit. Um, I told you that anthropology really develops um, within a specific context in the early 20th century. And the idea there was for, for people to go off and study um, uh, indigenous people, they used to be called natives at the time, um, you know, in the colonies and in other places. That's the history of anthropology. I emphasize that that is the history, the past now. So certainly we don't call people natives and nothing of the sort, this has, you know, this, this, is, this is the past, but thankfully, I think, but that history also has a legacy because in anthropology, um, there is this legacy of studying other people as opposed to studying your own society. So um, when I, when I uh, did my doctorate, for example, I did my doctorate at, at Cambridge, um, it was 20 of us um, doing, doing a doctorate in that particular year. And I think all of us went to places that were not their own, mm. but one. One of us went, went to, um, he was from Denmark and he studied something to do with Denmark. Um, so there is that legacy, but I think this is changing now. It has, has been changing for quite a while. Um, and the tendency within anthropology as well is now for people to um, study also their own society. I mean, I have done that myself. Uh, my my um, my recent uh, not not the the Cindy's one, but I, I had I wrote a book before that, and it was on um, conservation and environmentalists in Malta. Um, so it was my own society. Um, your question is, of course, more complex because you asked about the difference between. The two approaches. The both approaches, yes. Um, well, in terms of what you do on the ground, there is no difference really. So, so you would you would uh, study another society just as you would study your own. There's no difference. Um, probably the idea was that when you study another society, you are a bit more of a blank slate, so to speak so to say, a bit more of an open mind, a bit more objective, because it's not the society we're brought up in, so you are possibly better placed to, um, to look at it in a more perhaps objective way. Um, but I no longer believe this, um, I have to say. Um, I think I think it's probably, this is what I think, not what anthropology thinks, all right? The, the jury is out on this. This is a, an ongoing debate in anthropology. So, mm. so certainly not the final word on this, far, far from it. But, but um, 
I, I nowadays I tend to think that it, it actually makes more sense to study your own society rather than another mm. society. For various reasons, um, uh, cultural competence, it takes you ages to, to, it takes you ages to really understand what's, what's happening in, in uh, when you go to, I, mem I mean, I remember the first weeks in India, I was completely lost um, uh, and uh, it was not India's fault, it was my fault, of course, because I, 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 I mean, I didn't know much about, about, about India mm. and I mean, you know, the climate's different, the food's different, these are the practical, the everyday practicalities, um, you have to get yourself organized and you have to learn how things work and, and um, so you spend a lot of time just learning how to exist really on a on a on a day-to-day -day basis before you can begin to do any any field work um so i think probably um uh, it it i think it makes more sense to study your own society that said there has been some wonderful work in anthropology um and i'm talking about a huge volume of work now by people studying societies other than their own. So um, uh, it probably has to do with, 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 with your approach, how, how, you know, how effective you are as an anthropologist. But my answer is somewhere between it makes no difference to it's perhaps a bit easier to study your own society, certainly logistically, certainly for, from the practical point of view um because you already have um you have what is sometimes in philosophy called a pre-understanding of that society mm. because you, you're brought up in it i mean you already know certain things you don't need to to understand each and everything you come across now of course i mean india was not i i, I don't wish to exaggerate how alien it felt because i mean i First of all, India and Malta share a history in a sense because we're both right. British. <laughs> so, so there is that, um, and and many many things were familiar to me um, uh, in in India. But on the other hand, it was a different a different uh, place. It's just like when Indians come to Malta, of course, it's a different, a completely different context, isn't it? I find this answer to be such. Uh you know, such a breath of fresh air because as an academic who's doing, spent his entire life on it, rethinking is so important and so difficult. And uh, you've been able to demonstrate that through this answer and through your body of work. So really inspired by that. Mark, I think I rethinking wanna, is the right word. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit about uh, Sindhis uh, as a community. Of course, like, you know, the usual arguments uh, notwithstanding, of course, we're not saying that all Sindhis are like that and there's no difference between one Sindhi and the other. I mean, that's trivial. It goes without saying. But can you can you talk to us about some attributes about that community that you've documented in the book? Specifically, what makes them or what made them stand out in the world of business? What made them successful? A bit like some of the other communities around the world, smaller ones, um, that we can also look at, if you want, as a comparative study. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, well, but this is very apt because, because this, um, the book is really, is, is one of a series of books. Um, uh, and um, the, the, the series looks at different business communities in India. That's, that's, that's the fact. Um, this book on the Marwaris, for example, by someone called yeah. uh, Miss uh, Timberg. It's it's uh, it's, a, it's quite a best bestseller, I'm told. Um, also, introduction by Gujaran. Um, this is the Gujarati merchants from Kutch. Um, so th th there's a series of so this one on the Sindhis is part of a series. Um, so it, it it's a very apt question, really. Um, as you say. To describe a, a group of people as a community is not to, to um, imply that these are um, uh, one big happy family or that they all think and say far from it. Um, but it's fair to say that they share a sense of identity. They are Sindhis. They share a sense of being Sindhis. So that's what 
what what uh, keeps them apart, as it were, apart in, in the sense of identity. I mean, um, just as I feel Maltese, and just as you feel Indian, presumably, um, Sindhis feel Sindhi. Sindhi. They also feel Indian. They also feel whatever they feel. Um, we have yeah. multiple identities. In a, in any case, that that's as you probably as you say, that's a bit right, I suppose. How about business? This is where it gets interesting, really, because Sindhis are synonymous with business. Um, that's not to say that all Sindhis are in business, of course. Um, there are many Sindhis who are in other areas, other professions, for example, um, services, and so many, so many different fields. Um, but Sindhis stand out as a business community. Certainly in India, when you mention Sindhis, the first thing that comes to people's mind is probably business, okay? Um, yeah. Now, to say something about that, first of all, and I, I say this in the book, there is no such thing as a Sindhi miracle, okay? <laughs> because a book, in a book like this, it's, it's easy to lapse into stereotype. Sindhis are this, Sindhis are that, they are great business people, and so on and so on. And they will always do well, no, no, there is no such thing as a Sindhi miracle. I mean, some some businesses, some Sindhi businesses do very well. Some of them do very well indeed. There are famous Sindhi names. The Hindujas, for example, are probably one of the most famous names worldwide. Um, I don't know how many billions they're worth or tens of billions. Many perhaps. billions, yeah. Many billions. <laughs> I met him in, uh, met the brothers in Davos a few years back. And uh, fascinating conversation. Um, yes, that was that was sounds likely. Um, um, but absolutely, you know, these are these are um, businesses that have done very very well indeed. By the way, the Hindujas are shikarpuris, um, so originally yeah. moneylenders and bankers, which makes sense. No, um, um, others in the businesses do well enough. That is, they, they do well enough to, to provide their owners with, a, with a, you know, a good enough income. But then there are also Sindhi businesses that fail, that go bust, yeah. that go under, many, many, many of them. And in fact, the, the, the story of Sindhi business is also the story of business failure. So I wish to emphasize this, not to, to this Sindhis, but to avoid this idea of the Sindhi miracle, so the Midas touch, that whatever the Sindhi's touch turns into gold, they are the, 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 no, not at all. So that's the caveat. Um, however, having said that, the fact remains that Sindhi's are synonymous with business and that many, very many Sindhi's are in business and tend to stay in business. There is a certain continuity as well within the Sindhi group. Um, let me talk about some attributes, perhaps. Now, these are cultural attributes, not genetic or, <laughs> these are cultural yeah. attributes, okay? As an academic, you have to be so careful of what you say, right? Because somebody can just twist your yes, words. I and mean, say that. Uh, I, if I said that this, I, I would probably deserve to lose my job, no, if I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> and I need my job. Um, so these are cultural attributes, just like, for example, I don't know, a certain period of, of uh, history in, in city in city states of Italy there was a certain cultural artistic ferment no it's not that they were genetically predisposed for that or anything but the the, the, the circumstances enabled that they it created a certain cultural milieu within which people could flourish I think that's the closest it gets um so there are certain attributes one of them is I think that the, this this um, this need to strike out on your own. Um, this is, it's very strongly felt by many Sindhis. Um, uh, people who, who, who start out as employees, perhaps, of Sindhi firms or maybe other businesses, um, but 
they feel the need to be their own boss, to, to, to strike out on their own, to set up their own business. This is perhaps something that really comes across when you work with and talk to and live with Cindy's. This, this, uh, it's, it's a constant concern, sort of. Um, the second, perhaps, is, um, I know this has become a cliche, but I don't think I can avoid it here, a certain resilience, a certain resilience, mm. a certain ability to bounce back. Um, so even when things go wrong, when the business goes bust, when you lose everything, there is a sense of somehow, somehow, if you try hard enough, if you perhaps look elsewhere, elsewhere meaning mm. elsewhere in the world, possibly, and I'll, I'll get back to this. Um, um, you know, possibly there, there could be a way out. This, this, this tendency to bounce back. I've come across so many instances of Cindy businesses that failed, that didn't do well, but eventually they started afresh. Um, this, this constant, in fact, there is a, a, almost an, an oscillation, no, in, in the typical Cindy business. Um, um, you might say that's true of all businesses, maybe. But, but I think among, among, uh, among Cindy's, this is a strong cultural um, feeling that, that, you know, you need, you need to, to, to get back in business. You need to explore a new line, to, you know. So that's, an, that, that's, that's another attribute. A third attribute is mobility. This is so important. I cannot overemphasize this. Now, um, the, again, I should point out that not all cities are mobile. Not all of them move around all the time. There are many cities in India and elsewhere who have shops, I don't know, businesses, for example, electronics in Gujarat. You know, there are pockets of Sindhis um, in Ulhasnagar as well, outside uh, Mumbai, a very famous place at Sindhis. Um, Jaipur, the, the old bazaar, for example, has Sindhis. Anyway, I could, I could go on mentioning that. These are pockets of Sindhis, originally, of course. They were many of them were partition refugees, certainly in Rasnagar. Right. Um, they moved to um, uh, India at at, uh, at, at partition. Um, uh, incidentally, if, if you will allow me a bit of an aside, partition is interesting, um, and it, it sort of tells us something about what you um, what you ask because Sindhis tend not to emphasize when you talk to them um, the trauma of partition. Mm. This is quite interesting. And, you know, many Sindhis suffered tremendously at partition. It was not easy for them. I mean, for some it was easier because they had businesses around the world and so on. They could just go there. But for most Hindus who moved to India, Sindhis, things were difficult. Um, but when you talk to them, what they emphasize is not so much the trauma, but their ability to overcome it. Um, they, will, they will tell you about, for example, how they, they sold papar and, and, and uh, pickles and you know, small things that didn't much capital um, and how they made money from, from pretty much um, all manner of small businesses and so on. And within a couple of decades, they had actually set up on their own. They had survived, they had overcome the difficulties, the economic difficulties of partition. So trauma, the social and, and uh, emotional trauma of partition tends not to be a main part of the Sindhi story as told by themselves, I should emphasize. <laughs> Because that's one thing with anthropology, which I should have mentioned. Anthropology tends to emphasize what used to be called the native's point of view. That is right. how people themselves experience the world. Anyway, enough of that. Um, um, sorry, uh, where, where were we? Um, oh, yes, the attributes, the, the attributes uh, of, uh, of uh, Cindy, Cindy businessmen and women. 
Um, so this, the, the, this, this attribute to, um, to overcome, to set up and to be mobile. I was telling you that not all Cindy's are equally mobile. Some are not mobile at all, but all Cindy's draw on a legacy of mobility. Sometimes right. long distance mobility and all Cindy's to some extent can, if they so wish, tap into that legacy. And so many Cindy's have done so. So for example, if you are um, a Cindy um, settled in Mumbai um, and your family business is not doing so well and, and you know, what you might do is get a job with a Cindy firm in Malaysia or Indonesia for a few years and eventually, if things go well, set up on your own in those countries. This is the legacy of the story I, 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 I said, I told you earlier, the story of Sindhwakis and the story of Shikarpuris. So while not, while not all Sindhis, indeed most Sindhis do not move around all the time. I mean, Sindhis live in places, they are attached to places, they are invested in places, they, 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 they give charity, some quite often to, to local communities. They are part of the local community. Um, remember, remember I told you how well they blended in Valletta when I was, when I was a kid. No? Right. We, they, were, they were part of us. Um, so they are certainly invested in place. They are not, uh, you know, they are not perpetual strangers, far from it. Um, but they have this legacy, this legacy of mobile trade, of adventure perhaps, of, of uh, innovation that comes with mobility that they can tap into. Let me give you a small analogy. Um, you will have heard of the Erasmus program, no? The student yep. exchange program um, uh, in the EU originally, but now also to other places because now it's Erasmus plus as well. Um, and we all, you know, we always try to, to encourage students to, to uh, go on Erasmus and to travel and to go to different places and so on. And one of the things that we preach to them, perhaps a bit too much, I think, um, is make this part of your experience, make this part of your life experience, this, this, this readiness to travel, this readiness to explore other places, to set up in other places, because this could come in handy in the future, in your future career. It build your own legacy of a readiness to move, as it were. And this is exactly what the Cindy's benefit from. Not, I emphasize, a perpetual motion or an attitude of perpetual, of being a perpetual outsider. That would be so unfair to Cindy's. But what they do, I think, share and can tap into episodically sometimes is this legacy and the network, of course, it's not just, it's not just a vague notion, there is a network of Cindy's around the world. A, a network does not mean one big happy family, it means a network, it means just that. Hmm. Um, a network of, 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 of people which the individual can tap into. So I think um, these are some of the attributes that, that characterize Cindy's as business people. I love that. And um, I just want to ask, are there other communities around the world that have some similarities with uh, the Cindy's as you describe in the book? And if you could comment on that. Very many, very many. Um, uh... Well, one one uh, group that comes to mind, which I haven't studied, to be fair, but but um, I, you know, I I know I know something about it, as I'm sure you do probably know more than I do. Lebanese people, um, uh, there is a Lebanese diaspora, in fact, a network of Lebanese people um, uh, around ar around the world. Um, uh, again, they draw on a legacy of mobile trade. 
No, these were, I mean, definitions, the definitions of ancient mm. times came from that part of the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Lebanese people of today um, uh, are some sort of latter-day Phoenicians, but, but there is a, a legacy of, of trade in the region, a, a readiness to strike mm. out and to, to do business in different places, and also networking. Now, networking can be exploitative, by the way. Huh? I mean, the Sindwerk firms, mm -hmm employing people back in Hyderabad, recruiting people back in Hyderabad, were not doing it for their love of humanity. I mean, they were doing it to increase their profits. So some of, the, some of, these, some of this networking could be exploitative, but it still creates opportunities for people. Um, because, you know, if you can live with being exploited for a few years, maybe you can put aside some money and eventually set up on your own. So the Lebanese are a group that 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 uh, come to mind. Many groups in India, but again, I'm sure your uh, your viewers know much more than I do on on uh, on this. Um, uh, classically, Jewish people uh, also were, were were synonymous with um, with 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 Jewish people, we have to be a bit careful because sometimes these these uh, these networks have led to, as we know, um, uh, stereotypes and also prejudice, and that's why I emphasized that it would be totally wrong to think of Sindhis as perpetual outsiders, and this is what happened to many Jewish groups historically. They were seen as perpetual outsiders, no matter how embedded they were in the societies where they lived, some people saw them as outsiders. They will, they will never quite belong. Maybe they saw themselves like that because of prejudice as well. Um, and that's, of course, a, it's, it's quite wrong and also a very dangerous thing. So, so um, and, and I think inaccurate. So certainly some, when you say the Jewish people, it's a bit of a generic, but, but some groups of, of uh, Jews are, are, are well networked um, uh, in that way. Um, um, again, historically, as you know, this gave rise to conspiracy theories and, you know, um, and, all, and other much more nasty things. Um, I'm thinking, Yes, if you, if you go back to history, for example, um, Italian Italian merchants in Renaissance times. Um, I mean, they were they were trading in London, for example. In, in cloth, and there are so many that it's actually hard to think of. And thing, but certainly, the Sindhis, um, uh, they occupy a you know a peach of a place in this. Um, history. I mean, they are uh, the, the thing with Sindhis is that they tend to fly under the radar a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I think, um, I think the the reason is that they are so they they tend to be so adaptable. This is perhaps another attribute of of Sindhis wherever they go. They are very adaptable. Let me give you a tiny example. Um, one of the first Sindhis I interviewed in, in, uh, in Malta at a shop, one the main uh, shopping thoroughfare in, 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 uh, in Valletta. Um, and they had a little shelf in a corner of the shop with um, uh, photographs of his ancestors, family members, uh, um, uh, and also a small uh, Ganesh, and then also a small statue of the Virgin Mary. Um, <clears throat> And I asked him to, the, you know, he said, he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very Hindu. I'm 100% Hindu, as he put it. Um, uh, but I also go to mass. Um, I send my children to a Catholic school. That doesn't make me less Hindu. There is this attitude, this attitude of adapting. Of, uh, and this wasn't... It wasn't posing, by the way, to, to he, he, you know, I've come across this so many times that I, I really and truly, truly believe that that Sindhis are 
adaptable in this sense, culturally adaptable, culturally. They, they, they don't stand out as a group. Um, um, you know, unless you know about them, you might, you might actually miss them where, in various places around the world. Um, so I think this is one of the reasons why they fly a bit under the radar. That is, they do not have, I don't know what, right? Historically, they wear characteristic clothes, or they, mm. they blend in. You know, they 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 blend, in. and this is, I think, also what makes. In fact, some among Sindhis, this is a perpetual, <laughs> a perennial headache. Um, uh, are we losing our culture? Are we blending in too much? What is happening? Do will there be a Sindhi culture in fifty years' time? In a hundred years? Time? with various cultural characteristics that borrow on what they find wherever they go. Yeah, I think uh, blending in, standing out, this uh, particular conundrum uh, plagues many communities. And uh, your book points out that uh, for Sindhis, it's been a double-edged sword. They've been pros, they've been cons, uh, but the fact that they've made a huge uh, difference uh, in the business world, in the cultural world, is uh, you know is a fact, and you've documented that so very well. I, I think so. Yes, I've, yes. Sir. I was just coming towards uh, the close of the interview. Do you want to um, just highlight a couple of key insights or surprising takeaways uh, from the process of writing this book? I think the story is fascinating, and I'm sure lots and lots of people are already reading it. But for you as an author, what stood out? Um, uh, good question. I have to think about that. Um, what stood out? First of all, I mean, this goes back to, to well, this goes back around 20 years, actually, because um, my, my first research on Cindy's or with Cindy's was 20 years ago um, in, 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 uh, in Mumbai. I've been to India many times since. Um, uh, and of course, I, I updated my, my notes for, for, uh, for this book. Um, what stands out? I think I think I would have to go for local local experiences. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, in Indonesia, for example, Cindy's have become quite famous for the production of soap opera, indigenous. Soap opera. These were people who went there as traders selling sind works. Over time, they diversified, and not, not only, they became producers of indigenous, quote unquote, soap opera. Um, another example East Africa, East Africa, and West Africa as well. Sindh is there are in the production of plastics, for example. Some Cindy companies are in the production of plastics. Um, Ulhasnagar. Ulhasnagar is, I remember the first time I went there, it's, it's absolutely a fascinating place. Um, because in Ulhasnagar, Cindy's are not just traders, they are, they are manufacturing things. They are making mm. things. And this, I think this is the one thing that 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 really will stay with me. This is the one thing that completely fascinates me about Cindy's. This huge diversity. Um, in fact, it can be overwhelming because when there is so much diversity, even within that one group, what on earth do you write about in particular? You know. Um, uh, so so, but so these are not these are moneylenders. Some some Cindy's are moneylenders. Others are traders. Others are bankers. Others are making, producing film, maybe film in, in, in Mumbai as well, um, um, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, hotels in Malaysia. Cindy's are very well known. Another example, tailors in Hong Kong. This is a very famous example. I'm sure you've heard of it. The 24-hour suit in Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
isn't that a, a, I mean, a, a miracle of innovation? In fact, you mentioned MBAs earlier, and I'm sure this is probably textbook stuff. And I, I don't have an MBA, but I suppose this would be textbook stuff for an MBA. I mean, this is not just seeing, this is creating an opportunity. Tailor-made suits take time and cost a ton of money, but why not make, why not tailor-make suits in 24 hours and at an affordable price, sometimes by mail order as well. And, you know, Cindy's in Hong Kong have been very, very prominent in this, in this line, indeed pioneers in, 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 in this line. So, you know, you look around at, at these different places and everywhere you see, you see these pockets of Cindy's doing all these innovative things. Um, and I think this is the one thing that really stands out as, as someone from the outside uh, looking at Cindy's, as it were. Um, this energy, uh, as where I called it, a, a life force. No, um, a life force of, um, uh, of innovation, really, innovation. I think that's, that's the one thing that stands out to me as an author. Fascinating. I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion, Mark. Um, and I look forward to having many such discussions with you on Network Capital about your books, about your research. And uh, I strongly recommend my community members and anyone listening to this particular um, episode to chime in, read the book and connect uh, on the ideas. Before I let you go, Mark, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't or any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our ambitious and curious community? No, parting words, I suppose I thank you for the privilege. Um, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. I, I, I'm always happy to talk about Cindy's. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I really thank you for your time and for this uh, chance to discuss um, a small part of my work, really. The pleasure is entirely mine. Until next time, Mark.